Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, come check things out. We actually brought the Wednesday G file um, out from behind the quote unquote paywall. We don't like calling it that, but I don't know what else to call it. Hey, force field. Um, and uh, it was it was particularly ranty. And um, uh, today's guest, very excited about it. You know, my old boss, Ben Wattenberg, he used to brag about how he was uh, Ronald Reagan's favorite Democrat. Um, and I don't think our guest likes this analogy in any way, but I think he is dispatch listeners favorite liberal. Um, or I should say remnant listeners favorite li- liberal. Um, uh, at some point, maybe we'll have a poll on this. I don't mean to disrespect Mo Alethi or some of the other people, but, uh, um, there you have it. Will Salatan of Slate magazine, uh, national correspondent, I believe, right? That's the thing I'm supposed to call you. Uh, that's the, th- yeah, that is nominally my title. Okay. It's, um, it's kind of weird. Like remember when we were journalistic larvae? how incredibly important titles seemed. Um, and like, and it's funny and I, I don't mean to belittle it because like I, as now as now running a magazine or a media thing or co-running or whatever, we hire a lot of young people, including some of the guys who are, you know, handcuffed to the radiator listening to this as we talk. And, um, for them, titles are like hugely important things. They're like the first like rungs on this ladder and that kind of thing. And then by the time, like when Steve and I were arguing about arguing, talking about like what to call each other, what titles we should have. I think we put about two minutes into it. It's like, all right, you be editor and CEO and I'll be editor in chief, whatever. <laughs> you know? <laughs> just don't care. And, um, but anyway, I don't know why this, I thought of that. By the way, th- this is why we have to die, Jonah, because like we've used up all of our excitement over promotions. Right. And, uh, you see, you see young people get really excited. Someone got, someone got promoted. They got no more money, but they got a better title. And they're very right. excited about that. And we've lost that. They've lost the power to do that. And so that's why we need to die and move on. Yeah. Although, I mean, there are, there are things that will give me that kind of excitement still. Um, large sums of cash still does. It. Uh, <laughs> I'm still capable of joy in the, that regard. Um, no, Wait, but that's would, you really, would you really rather have the cash than the business card that you never hand out anymore? Um, that's a good point. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> no i don't know i mean uh you, it's it's just it's it it's like awards and prizes and these kinds of things 
you kind of have a more jaundiced view about a lot of this kind of stuff. Right. And the same I think thing you with, could with construct an entire G file about uh, the titles that have been handed out at the, at uh, the dispatch. I don't think that's a good <laughs> idea, but it was, um, uh, your founder, uh, Michael Kinsley, who I think was the first to observe that in Washington, uh, the longer that your title is in government, the worse the job is and the shorter, the better, right? So president, just president, but assistant undersecretary for, you know, South American liaison affairs. Eh. <laughs> it's not that impressive. Right. All right. Sorry. I'm overtired. Um, where to begin? I guess we should begin on, we don't want to veer back into uh, somber stuff at the end of the show. So uh, we're recording this on September 9th. Saturday is the 20 year anniversary of September 11th. Um, you have a new piece up at Slate on thoughts on on all of this. I recently wrote about it as well. Uh, why don't you just sort of summarize your your thoughts right now and we'll take it from there. Okay, so uh, the quick version is, you know, there's a lot of talk about 9-11, you know, 3,000 Americans killed, 3,000 people, 2,600 Americans killed uh, 20 years ago. And uh, we've been fighting this war on terror ever since. Uh, and yes, we've prevented other terrorist attacks of not the same magnitude. Then we also have all these, you know, deaths in Afghanistan. And oh my God, Biden is a terrible person because 13 service members got killed in the evacuation. And so there's all this stuff about terrorism. Meanwhile, we are losing literally a thousand Americans a day to COVID, right? We've lost 650,000 people. There are millions dead around the world. Um, and th th to me, this is the, this is the great crisis that's going on now. This is the attack that America has been under for a year and a half. And the party, the, the Republican party, which after 9-11 completely reoriented the government to confront this threat has just buried its head in the sand about COVID. Now, not entirely, you know, obviously there are things have gotten a little bit better recently in terms of talking about vaccination, but largely starting with Donald Trump, the Republican party made a terrible, terrible decision, which was instead of being the party of security and let's all get together and fight this virus, they decided to be the party, the sort of tea party, party of uh, civil liberties and the party of particularly the liberties of people who don't want to get vaccinated, don't want to wear masks, don't want to do anything to help their fellow Americans. And as a result, we have way, way more deaths than we should. And this is just a calamity. And it's a it's a stain on the Republican Party. OK, so that's my liberal take. OK, so. Um, it's funny, not ha ha funny. Uh, I I wrote my column, a column this week about how looking back on the last 20 years, it's really difficult not to see it really just as a sort of an extension in the rear in reverse as it were, you know, uh, retrospectively, um, as so much of the war on terror stuff really was, was culture war stuff by other means. And, um, and it's kind of shameful and embarrassing. And I look at it. I don't think it was all a waste. I think that preventing another nine 11 style attack is a very significant thing. Um, America, every, everyone back then thought more was coming. In fact, I have this theory that we didn't get the Department of Homeland Security because of 9-11. We got it because of the anthrax attacks, because that's what was freaking people out at the time in Washington. And we forget about how that seemed like, oh, my God, it's just not these major iconic targets. It's like normal people are being attacked. And it turned out it wasn't Al-Qaeda. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But uh, there were a lot of important things 
that were done that and all that but at the same time you think about how so many people on my side were convinced or wanted to convince other people that we were 10 seconds away from Sharia law in America, which is just batty and dumb. Um, or a lot of people on your side of the aisle were convinced that the worst thing about the Patriot Act was that it was declaring war on libraries, which was nonsense. You still needed like a warrant from a judge. And yet people were gnashing their teeth and rending their cloth about that stuff ad nauseum. Um, I think both sides took turns being in favor of free speech and against free speech. In the beginning, it was all the left talking about how this terror regime is going to um, limit freedom of the press and the ability to have dissent on campus and Ward Churchill is a martyr and Bill Maher shouldn't have apologized for what he said. Yeah, all that crap. And then a decade later, it's Republicans saying, why won't you print offensive cartoons of Muhammad and Charlie Hebdo are heroes and how dare the president crap on this filmmaker who's criticizing Muhammad and blame him for Benghazi. And, and so, I mean, it cuts both ways, but you look at it, it's a lot of culture war nonsense um, or a lot of culture war stuff was really what was driving these things. And, um, and so I kind of agree with you in the sense that when I wrote the thing, it didn't occur to me as said that one of the things that makes me sad is that this culture war stuff has actually left us much less prepared for 9-11, another 9-11. It won't look like the other 9-11, but it'll be some event. And it occurs to me, you know, and now that the other 9-11 was the pandemic. And it proves my point. We were not well prepared to deal with it. And I agree with you that Donald Trump handled the pandemic badly. Uh, I think that some people would point out that the the neat and tidy narrative of, of Republicans handling the pandemic badly has troubled. Uh, the evidence in the data is harder to, to find in that states with red governors and blue governors or red states and blue states tend to have very similar performances um, in terms of spikes and death rates and all of that kind of thing. And there's something weird about how the pandemic really just doesn't actually seem to care as much about policies as, um, as the narrative makers would want. But uh, I, I can't argue with you that the Republican Party dropped the ball on COVID because the Republican Party dropped the ball on COVID. <laughs> okay. So uh, a couple things on on COVID itself, it's true that the aggregate data and the data up till uh, this spring, say, didn't show a big gap like state by state or county by county based on partisanship or policy. And some of that has to do with where the virus came in, right? The vi like the terrorists came into New York, right? That's where the people were. Well, the virus did that too, right? The virus yeah. came in through international travel. So it came to blue areas first. And so, look, Andrew Cuomo just did a, a horrific job of handling the nursing homes and stuff. So let's just admit that. But by and large, um, mitigation was uh, preventative. It saved a lot of lives. And people, places that didn't do that, places that opened up, got more COVID. Um, now, what's happened in the last couple of months, basically from this spring on, is you're starting to see the differentiation in places that have more vaccination places that doing are doing more mitigation. Let's be honest, the vaccination 
you know, matters way, way more than mm-hmm. other, other measures to prevent the virus. But in places that have done that, which have largely been the blue states, um, and that's mostly because more people are vaccinated there, there's, you're starting to see this significant gap opening. And now there's a linear relationship, literally a linear relationship between the percentage of Trump vote per county and the outcomes of, and, and COVID deaths. And that's, it's, it's really terrible over the last couple of months, how much that's escalated. So that's the, those are just some, some facts about COVID, but sorry, you want to. Yeah. I mean, let's there. stay on COVID for a second. Cause we can get to the, the other nine 11 ruminations in a minute. Um, so again, look, I, 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 I'm, I'm embarrassed by the anti-masking stuff. The, um, at least from last year, uh, I think the anti-vaccine stuff is insane. Smart people, serious people keep telling me that ivermectin is a serious drug that saves lives and all these kinds of things. And look at these studies and look at this and people have been prescribing it for human consumption for decades and it's blah, 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 blah. And if you keep the aperture of the lens narrow on that singular kind of point, it's a perfectly fine point. But we don't live in the universe where I need to hear any of this stuff because we have a vaccine. (laughs) And the only reason people are talking about ivermectin is because they don't want to take a vaccine. And that's really dumb to me. And it's embarrassing. And and the degree to which a lot of people on my side have have promoted this stuff drives me crazy. So I'm going to stipulate all that. I just, I have to push back on this notion, though, that like the public health system, the public health apparatchiks have done a great job. Um, I thought that the saying that mass gatherings are terrible, they're evil, you're killing people, you're tearing down this country, you're ruining the economy, unless you're protesting police racism, um, was an incredibly important tell. Um, and uh, the people who were saying, well, you know, racism has public health, pro- has public health consequences too. And getting rid of racism is important enough to take these risks as if these people have any idea how to, that, that these protests are going to quote unquote, get rid of racism. Um, I thought all of that was embarrassing. Um, the behavior of the teachers unions has been embarrassing. Um, I think that in general, uh, you're right that the Republican party has behaved badly. But I think the Democratic Party has behaved badly. I think liberalism itself, like, I think that this country did not respond well to the pandemic. And it manifested itself in partisan ways. But, you know, the people who said before the Delta virus, you know, we're going to keep wearing masks even though we're vaccinated and basically want to wear masks forever that sends bad signals too and i just think it's like the your the democratic party is so invested in technocracy and the cult of expertise that it has this sort of public healthy kind of authoritarianism to it and the republican party right now is so invested in sort of gadsden flagged populist libertarianism that its bad response to the pandemic expresses itself in that kind of stuff Okay, so let me, let me defend the cult of expertise. Expertise is great. Expertise matters. Expertise is, should be based and generally is based on, on getting things right. And if you cease to get things right, you lose your expertise, or you should. I mean, the, 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 the stuff you're talking about, the errors on the left, or however we want to call it, 
that's all true, but it's all marginal, right? I mean, like, none of, first of all, none of this is public health officials. Public health officials are not people who said, you know, it's fine to protest if your cause is, you know, on the left, if your cause is anti-racism or whatever. Um, that's, that's politicians doing that kind of thing. Teachers unions have no expertise there were, in this. There were epidemiologists who were saying, I mean, I remember I wrote a big piece about the, the trees well, of the epidemiologists. There were quite okay. a few who did. So. Okay. Anybody who said that, like, you know, like, as you said, the virus doesn't care what your cause is, right? It mm-hmm. does care whether you're indoors or outdoors, right? If you're having an outdoor anti-racism protest, you're probably not going to spread a lot of COVID, right? But that's also true of your cause as the gun rights or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm with you there. The teachers unions are an interest group. They're not, they're, they don't, I mean, no offense to my friends who are teachers, but <laughs> teachers unions, like police unions, right? They don't represent law enforcement, police unions, and teachers unions don't represent education. They represent the people who are doing the job and they're, they're, they're not necessarily serving a cause. So their, their behavior about the pandemic has been entirely self-serving and, you know, sometimes at the expense of kids. And that's, um, I'm sorry, but that, that happens. Um, the, uh, let's see the, oh, masks. Yeah. The, the mask rules. Okay. I, I agree. Like some of the mask stuff is a little crazy. People wearing masks outdoors, people making kids wear masks. Jonah, I, I play basketball and the, I've just had the experience of having to, because of the DC laws, having to, having to, uh, DC order, not a law, having to wear a mask, playing an indoor basketball game. It's waterboarding. And people who did that to kids made them run around sweating into masks and then trying to inhale. That is insane. That's so much more dangerous than their risk of getting COVID. So I'm with you, all of those. But those are all that stuff is at the margins. You know, the basic fact, as you said, is we have this vaccine. And the number one thing that everybody should be doing is promoting the use of the vaccine. And then I would go further and say that we've had plenty of time for people to voluntarily get the vaccine. If you don't want to get the vaccine, you know, that's a civil, you, you, civil liberty. You can choose not to get the vaccine, but any business owner can choose not to let you in, right? And any, any public, local public facility can choose to not let you in. And that's a choice you make and there are consequences to it. And I'm really sick of these self-styled libertarians on the right who are not actually libertarians, who only care about the right of unvaccinated people not to get vaccinated, who are willing to trample the right of businesses to say who can come in and who can't, who, who are uh, trample the right of businesses to say whether their employees need to get vaccinated in order to be in the workplace. Real libertarians are letting you know private entities make those calls and they're not standing only for the right of those who don't want to get vaccinated, period. Yeah, no, again, I, I think that's all fair enough. I mean, all right, so I mean, I, we haven't actually talked about this, but like I have this pretty well-developed, at least in my own head, theory of part of what's going on. And I've already stipulated that the, the, the sort of talk radio right-wing world has beclowned itself on the vaccine stuff. I, I don't, you know, asked and answered counselor. Um, but um, the... So like there's all of this really interesting um, psychological literature on things like tolerance for strangers. If there's bad smell, if they smell that goes plummets, right? Um, That uh, we um, have all sorts of genetic programming that says um, be very fearful of people who look diseased. You know, there are these, these, these professional social psychologists who go around all year long trying to convince 
uh, water deprived communities that it's okay to use water that's recycled from sewage water. And, but there's something in people's brains. Like every, he goes around and he, one of these guys goes around and he goes to the county meetings and he'll drink some of it in front of everybody. And people <clears throat> freak out because there's something in our lizard brain that says tainted water bad. And we can't, even though the thing has been ultra purified and even the fluoride has been yanked out of it, our brains can't handle it. I think that we are hardwired to have a kind of fight or flight syndrome response to things like disease more in mean, disease, you know, killed more humans than any other thing in human history. It destroys whole cities and, um, um, and it's pre-rational. And I think it explains the fact that we've got runaway road rage incidents in this country. We've got people having to be duct taped to their seats on planes. Um, you know, the number of unruly passengers has like quintupled in the last year. Um, even though p- fewer people have been flying. Uh, I think a lot of the violent stuff doesn't have to do with the defund the police thing. It has to do with the fact that people kind of went nuts being locked up amidst the pandemic. And, um, and so I think that there is a general climate of irrationality going on that has different partisan faces to it, but, um, is, 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 is prevalent everywhere. I mean, I think we, you know, the, the, there's been excessive maskophilia and maskophobia in this country. And I think that if, let me put it this way, if Donald Trump were reelected, do you think the anti-vaxxer people would all still be on the right? Or do you think that the anti-vaxxing thing would become where it was before a left-wing thing because it's the Trump vaccine? So it's a great question. And I, let me just answer it more broadly. I think these things are somewhat, I don't want to say they're random, but the, I, sometimes I think about this other world in which instead of Donald Trump being president, some other Republican was president in the beginning of 2020. And it's, I mean, it's, we know what the answer was in the case of George W. Bush, right? We get, it, it, it was an attack on this country. We're going to unite against it. We're going to be, you know, and, and civil liberties, as, as you know, we point out, but they were just completely set aside. Um, no. Okay, you, you're going to argue about the extent to which they were set aside. But the point was, Republicans I don't really decided, think they were set aside very much at all, but anyway, we can have that. Okay, but, the, but Republicans said, we're going to be the party that unites the country against this threat. And that could have happened at the beginning of 2020. And because Donald Trump was president and, and turned things first in the direction of you know, denial and then standing in the way of public health measures... Um, other Republicans followed him. And that, you know, I, I'm, I'm feeling bad here because I'm just piling on the Republican Party. But the point is that a lot of public officials in the United States just handled this terribly. They fell into line behind Donald Trump and they just failed to stand up to it. And and yes, it would have been the other way around. I mean, Jonah, I wrote used to write about GMOs. GMOs mm-hmm. is exactly the reverse of this, right? Where like sure. this this left-wing insanity, I mean, mostly left-wing insanity against GMOs with the same kind of selective, like the obsession with like, you know, an infinitesimal risk, which exists, right? But then Mm. in order to like be obsessed about GMOs, you have to forget the part where there's a higher degree of risk with all these other food producing technologies that you're totally fine with. You don't even think about them. Right. It's the same thing with the ivermectin, right? So I think what's really going on here is there's this unfortunate search for an angle of opposition. So if one party says, we're going to be the party that believes the sun comes up in the morning and goes down at night and, the, and it comes up in the east and goes down in the west, the other party is like, no, 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 no. 
you know, either the sun goes the other way or the sun doesn't move, you know, the, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, or the, you know, they're the party of, of, uh, that says the earth revolves around the sun. So we're this art party that says the sun revolves around the earth. It's, it's a search for an angle of opposition and you find yourself saying some crazy stuff because you decided that, well, they're the party that believes that we should take public health measures to protect, uh, this, to prevent the spread of the virus. So we're going to be the party that's against all that, or that's for the right of people to refuse it. And at some point you have to ask yourself, how did I get here? And do I really have a stake in this crazy position where I ended up? I I agree with that. I mean, like, I mean, I thought the the two most illuminating things among this group of of anti-vaxxers on the right, uh, two most illuminating moments were one, Alex Berenson talking to that CPAC audience in Dallas where he said, yeah, the, the Biden administration thought they were going to be able to sucker like 90% of Americans into taking the vaccine and they failed. And the audience like applauds. Yeah. yeah. Like we weren't going to be suckered into taking this life-saving vaccine. You know, it's like really weird. But because it was a Biden agenda thing, they were, uh, it was somehow good that it didn't succeed without thinking about, well, you know, what's the agenda? If, 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 if the Biden agenda was to keep chuds, cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers from coming up from the sewers and eating us all, like I would like to think that even Republicans would say, yes, I hope Biden's agenda succeeds, you know? Um, but, and then the second one was like that guy that CBS news talked to where he was in the hospital and he said, and he almost died and he was like COVID almost wrecked him. And, um, but he said, if I had to do it all over again, I still wouldn't take the vaccine. And he was asked why. And he said, because it's their agenda. And they're just trying to shove their agenda down my throat. And it's, it's, it's like, okay, yeah, it's their agenda, but it's not a partisan agenda. It's like one of the first functions of government is to like save people's lives from disease. It's like one of the things that we do. And, but your analogy to the 9-11, I mean, I get it. But at the same time, there were a lot of people who disproportionately among sort of left-wing influencer types who kind of took the same contrary approach to 9-11, to the war on terror and said, you know, I mean, I was talking to Steve about this on our, Steve Hayes on our podcast, our other podcast about this yesterday. And, you know, the, he was down around the Capitol on 9-11 and by the end of the day there were protests out front saying oh america had this coming and, and all of these kinds of things and there were people who took this immediate and or who immediately took the position that the real threat is from the u.s government and not from uh um the people who are murdering thousands of americans i mean i, I do think there's something in american culture that immediately has these kinds of knee-jerk partisan responses i just think they're getting worse yeah, yeah, and the polarization, of course, has made it worse because the the notion is, well, you have those people in your party, the people who believe in, uh, let's say, the terrorists are bad. So we're gonna we're gonna like do, cultivate an alternative audience that thinks that the you know that America is bad, and therefore anything that happens to America, like, we deserve it or whatever. And that leads to yeah, that leads to all kinds of insanity. Sometimes yeah, I, say, I, I, I was going to say, go ahead. No, no, I, I was going to take us away to, to a different, to a, a, the, my alternative universe of COVID. So I'll wait for you. Okay. Well, so I was going to take us away to a slightly different topic in that you said earlier, you wanted to talk about the, this cult of expertise thing and then defended expertise. I am perfectly fine defending expertise. I am pro expertise. 
I generally do not go to my accountant to have my appendix removed. Um, I'm with you. Expertise is a thing and it is important. And the people who say they don't want to be, you know, told what to do by experts, they're almost always selective about this because they too don't go to their accountant for their medical advice. Um, although these days maybe they do. Um, but my problem is with cults and there is a cult of expertise. Do you see this whole brouhaha about Nate Silver's tweet yesterday? Yeah. Okay. So for listeners who aren't on Twitter, first of all, good for you. God bless. Um, <laughs> uh, he, he tweets this chart about what would the experts do? Um, they, they surveyed a bunch of, uh, public health experts and, um, and ask questions like, would you send your unvaccinated child to school without a mask? All of them said, no, send your vaccinated teen to school without a mask. All of them said, no, almost all of them said, no, go to a movie theater to see a film. Almost all of them said, no, eat indoors in a restaurant. Almost all of them said, no, or two thirds of them said, no, and so on and so on. And, and Nate writes, if two thirds of vaccinated infectious disease experts won't eat indoors at a restaurant, and almost half won't attend an outdoor sporting event, then of course people reading that are going to think breakthroughs are a big deal, and of course they'll want boosters. And I think, I think Silver's point is, is, is exactly right, but I think there's an even broader point, which is that there are a bunch of people um, who are in the public health realm who are suddenly on TV a lot who suddenly are sort of driving policy and conversation in ways that they don't get to for like most of their careers. And I got to say, like, this is just a pure public choice kind of theory kind of uh, position. I think the power has gone to some of their heads. I think some of them want, don't like, don't want the moment to end. Um, and they come across that way. And, um, one of the, and, and like idolatry is always creeps me out. And so like crazy Anthony Fauci fandom creeps me out. Also crazy, irrational Anthony Fauci hatred bothers me too. But there is this, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy about the left is, is, is the, you know, I believe the science, follow the science and they make it sound like it's, 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 First of all, the science is a single knowable thing. And that second of all, that that's something they actually always do. But as you know, just from like your GMO example, there are all sorts of places where saying follow the science is really a way to avoid having to actually have an argument about what the right policy is and what the science actually is. And instead, and it's the fa it's a logical fallacy of appealing to authority a lot of the time. And I do think there is a lot of that in American life in the sort of the cult in the in the cult of expertise in science. Have at it. Defend okay. defend your clan. <laughs> okay. Well, let me let me start with a small point and then make the go to it a large one. The small point is I I it really grieves me to see Anthony Fauci become the target of this giant propaganda campaign. I mean, the, the, here is here are the facts, and I plead to a conservative audience. This guy has been the wrongest person about the pandemic 
except for <laughs> absolutely everybody else. I mean, he's not perfect. He's made mistakes. But every time he's been wrong about something, he, he, he does follow changing information and revises his opinion. He gets attacked for that. But he's, he's been extremely cautious by and large. Look, the guy does a lot of talking. So if you go through all the video, you'll find places where he said something that was where with more confidence than he should have. And he, like a lot of other people, got the most fundamental thing wrong at the beginning, which was assuming that COVID would be like previous SARS. And would, would, I mean, they, they underestimated asymptomatic transmission, and that was disastrous. But he was like the most, he was the person who most said, we need to test more people to make sure that we're not wrong about this, which it turned out, which it turned out we were wrong. So please, please, if you're going to complain about expertise, don't target Fauci. We, I mean, Ron DeSantis is selling t-shirts about, you know, don't Fauci my floor. I mean, this is nuts, completely nuts. And I would say it's like an index of the insanity of our time that this public health official who's extremely judicious about what he says and is generally not ideological, just follow the facts, has become the target of this campaign. Okay, that's my rant about Fauci. Let me set that aside. I agree with you about expertise, but I would plead with conservatives to come up with a, to, well, not come up with, but to choose a more sensible line of criticism of this cult of expertise than the one that they have chosen. There's way too much of appealing to populist resentment at the experts, which just cultivates this sort of distrust of the vaccines, distrust of all public health measures, distrust of anything the government says. And that's, been, that's not just been harmful, it's been deadly, absolutely deadly in this pandemic. The correct response is the one that you're articulating, Jonah, which is, there is a difference between expertise and evidence, right? And what we want is a public that respects evidence and learns how to judge evidence and how to judge stated expertise against evidence, right? So it's not that I don't like your expertise because you're saying something I don't want to hear. It's that actually what you're saying doesn't check out. So, okay, a survey of experts in which, what, what would they do with their kids? Like I would make my kid wear a mask all the time. Really? On what's, what's your basis for that? Let's see the studies. Let's see the context. Let's see the relative risks. And I think that your criticism of that and Nate Silver's criticism are entirely well-founded, right? But that puts you in the position of being with the evidence no matter where the evidence goes, which in this case literally will save people's lives, right? So, and I agree with you also, like, draw some distinctions. Masks versus vaccines, right? There's a lot of hype about masks, right? There's a lot, on the left, there's this, an assumption that masks are this kind of, I don't want to say cure-all, but that they're more effective than they really are. They're not, cloth masks are just not that effective, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, more serious masks are. But if every, I, I tell people on the right, if you just get vaccinated and get your friends and your family vaccinated, that will have a way, way bigger effect on this pandemic than masks, right? And we should just be honest about that. So that's just a case of, focusing on evidence and being willing to criticize stated expertise when it goes too far. Okay. What's your, what's your response? Yeah. So look, I, I think that's all fair. Um, on, on the Fauci stuff, uh, I, I think his sort of admission that they lied about masks because that was a way to make sure that first responders and healthcare workers got them during a shortage was not great, Bob. Uh, and you know, you, you have a, you have a certain stockpile of credibility with the public. And even if you're well-intentioned, 
Um, much like the, the stuff I was talking about with the, the, the Floyd protests, like you, the second you say, um, we're not actually going to follow science. We are going to guess where the American people are and what their tolerance is for certain truths. Um, when you have a cons large constituency of Americans who are hyper attentive to, to find reasons not to believe you, every time you make those kinds of concession every time you deviate from your stated priorities of just following the evidence wherever they take you um it does real and serious damage now i agree there are a lot of unfair attacks on fauci i also think i i disagree maybe it's just because i'm friends with him but like i think scott gottlieb has actually been more consistently right about stuff than even fauci has love scott gottlieb terrific um but in part that's because he hasn't been in government and 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 he could he had much the risk premium of sounding like he was calibrating what he had to say for political reasons or public relations reasons was just much less in fairness to, to fauci and all that but um uh, but i think scott has really done a remarkable job um that said, I don't really understand why they still keep putting out Fauci, except for the reasons that, that I'm talking about, about cult of personality stuff. There is not a person left in America who could be persuaded by Fauci who um, has not heard enough from Fauci, right? I mean, like, everybody who loves Fauci, uh, they've already gotten vaccinated. They already got the message. And if your goal is to persuade other people who are just by evidence immune to Fauci's charms and persuasive powers, maybe start putting somebody else out there. I will add just another point on this in that I get heaping scorn on Trump voters for their anti-vax stuff and all of that. Um, I don't know that it's smart public policy to do it. I don't know that that actually gets them to yes on vaccinations. I think there's a lot of cultural smugness going on in all of this, all of that kind of stuff. But I, I, you know, the guy who, um, you know, you know, is all in on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine because you won't take the vaccine, the vaccine that Donald Trump created. Uh, I understand why you would want to mock him. I would mock him. I get it. If I were liberal, what I do think a lot of people pick up on is that, at least until recently, uh, uh, numerically, the bigger threat in the pandemic among unvaccinated weren't rural Trump voters. They were uh, largely minority communities in large urban centers. And even though they were, so even LA, which had like 70% vaccination, let's say, you know, three months ago or two months ago, 30% of the unvaccinated population, unvaccinated population in LA is a much bigger problem than 70% unvaccinated in Yadahay Flats, Nebraska, just because of population density, of the, of the vectors for travel and all that kind of stuff. And you would see it all the time is like the, the way the press would talk about uh, the unvaccinated when it was Trump people was, oh, look at these rubes, these yokels. Um, they're straight out of deliverance. They believe in their, their orange Cheeto Jesus guy. What idiots. Right. And then all of a sudden the long history of 
you know, of systemic racism has caused many members of the African-American and Hispanic community to be reluctant to get vaccinated. And, you know, this really does shed negative light on America. The condescension towards one group and the, the scorn towards the other group, um, people pick up on that. People see it. And, it, and again, it, just, it, it, it pulls the mask off, so to speak, on where it confirms a lot of the suspicions. This is why Alex Berenson, who I do think is a terrible person and remarkably irresponsible person, um, that's why he gets standing ovations talking about how, you know, the Biden administration tried to, you know, trick us into like saving our lives. Ha ha ha. He lost. Um, it's that kind of stuff. And I think it's, you know, the culture war stuff, it takes two to tango. And there's a large segment of the way people on the left talk about the risks, the problems, the, the unvaccinated, all of these things that are shibboleths that people pick up on that say this really is about politics for these people. Okay. So I agree with you. And, 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 you know, listening to this really makes me think that I should back up a little bit. And I mean, the, the article that I just wrote in Slate is about how the Republican Party botched this. And I, that is true. However, I think you make a good point about the message that goes out and the cultural, the, I mean, the cultural division over COVID and how that has influenced people's behavior. So the, the enemy is politicization in this case, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's true a lot. Uh, the enemy is not the left. The enemy is not the right. Um, you know, if, to, if, if the right is making, it's sending people the wrong messages about vaccination, the problem, you know, the enemy is the wrong message about the vaccination, no matter who it's coming from. And I, I, I think that my takeaway from what you're saying is, and this is something that Fauci has said, actually, Fauci talks a lot about how the intrusion of politics into this, or it's not just the intrusion, but as you're pointing out, the entire thing all of COVID got framed as an identity thing. Are mm -hmm. you one of the vaccination people, the mask people? Are you the anti-mask people, the anti-vaccine people? And it needs to not be a thing about identity because nothing is, cares less about identity than this virus, which is just like, can I get in? Can I infect you? Can I infect the next person? And if we could just, so I'm, I guess my conclusion is I don't want to sort of play the left side of this debate. I want to just encourage everyone, uh, everyone who's listening to us um, and people, you know, people on the left who also might listen to this to not focus on who's right, who's, who's evil, who's good or evil, but what's, what is right or, or what is true or false. Right. And therefore, uh, I, I agree with you about sending those messages. I would point out in the case of Fauci, he's generally put out there to explain new information to people. And that is largely an audience of people who are already going to listen to him. I, so I, I think he does a good job of that, something like boosters, where a lot of you know, people who are already sympathetic to vaccination are like, do I need to get a booster? Um, outdoor masks, same thing. But I think you're correct that when the government or anybody is trying to reach out to an audience of people who haven't already listened to Fauci, we, by definition, we need somebody else. And it may not be a doctor, right? It may mm -hmm. be a minister, it may be some, and a, frankly, a lot of clergy people have done a lot of good work out there. No one talks about it, but they're out there with their congregations and they're privately advising people to get vaccinated. And people who won't listen to scientists are willing to listen to religion. And when religion is <laughs> expressing, you know, 
what God has given us in the form of a, vac- of a vaccine, they're doing God's work. So God bless them. All right. Um, let's um, switch gears. We've done a lot of COVID here, uh, which was not my plan, um, but I still rarely have plans. Um, <laughs> uh, we're not going to get into a big debate about Afghanistan stuff, but um, um, where do you come down on the merits of the actual withdrawal as conducted by the Biden administration. I, I, I've read a lot of your stuff. I've, I've retweeted a lot of your stuff about how Pompeo and a lot of the Trumpers are trying to pull a fast one, claiming that somehow they fundamentally had a different policy about withdrawal. They didn't. I agree with you. Stipulated. But how do you, how do you grade the actual withdrawal and, and where we are right now vis-a-vis the new Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan? Okay. Uh, I'll say two things. One, one is on the larger question of, of Afghanistan, the way, what happened on the way out, the, in the, the abrupt collapse of the Afghan army and government and the deaths of American service members did not make me think that we needed to be there longer. It made me think we should have left a long time ago. However, on your question, how the withdrawal was conducted, the simple fact is that a lot of people, that the United States government, a lot of people in the United States government, including Joe Biden, to the extent he listened to certain people or chose who to listen to, just were wrong. They were wrong about how long the Afghan government and the army was going to hold out. And that, that mistake had tremendous downstream, you know, harm for the country, for Afghanistan and for, and for us. Like we just, we, you know, they say, well, we knew we, we had contingency plans in place. No, you didn't, right? It's obvious that what happened here was they thought they had time to do a bunch of things to get people out that they didn't have. And yes, they told people months ago, you know, you should leave, right? Americans should leave. But like, the, the, if you're an American in Afghanistan, you thought that the government was going to hold out. You thought that there, you didn't think it was going to suddenly, everything was going to collapse then. And Mike Pompeo himself was on TV like three days before you know, like in the early August, Mike Pompeo was saying, gee, you know, this, this Taliban route is going a little faster than I thought because they were all, they were all wrong about it. And to the extent that Biden doesn't want to admit that he's just budging. And, you know, I mean, people on the right would say lying. I mean, Joe Biden is a storyteller, right? He, he rounds things off. He, 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 he shaves off parts of the truth. It's not as bad as Donald Trump, but it's its own kind of dishonesty. And that's just, you know, so so the, the, I think it's a very simple thing. They screwed up how long they thought they had, and that you know caused us to be rushing out and leaving people behind. And you know, it's tragic. And okay, so uh, here I, I I have some strong disagreements, but I, I don't want to redebate all this stuff. I had Peter Suderman on to talk about all sorts of light and hearted stuff, and we ended up doing forty five minutes of, of back and forth on on Afghanistan. I don't want to risk that again, but, um, I, I think you're being more, more generous, um, to the Biden administration than they deserve. Um, first of all, I, you know, I disagree with the policy. I think they've, and they've been very dishonest, I would argue, about how they frame these choices and how they framed the situation in general. But, uh, the, the, part that bothers me the most about the, the, the version that you have uh, or the version of, of events that you have is that it's not just that they misread 
the fighting spirit of the Afghan army. They literally pulled the plug on the Afghan army and then were shocked that the engine wouldn't run anymore. They, first of all, bugged out in the middle of the night with no warning out of Bagram, which sent this terrible message about pulling us aboard. They pulled all the contractors who do all of the maintenance, all the intelligence support, all the air support um, for the Afghan army. We had trained, and this is a huge black mark for the Pentagon, but um, in Republican and Democratic administrations a lot, we trained that army to work as a force multiplier for the United States. And when you yank, when you literally pull the plug um, of the role that the American forces and, 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 uh, and support play, you can't just say, I, we, didn't, we, we thought the Afghan army was going to fight longer. They literally kneecapped the Afghan army and then blamed the Afghan army for not fighting. And I, and I think that's outrageous. But um, I want to talk about like, the actual part about withdrawal. So I, 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 I take it that you think that it was sort of in our core national interest to get out, right? I mean, this is the argument the Biden administration makes. It's the argument that the Trump administration makes is that 20 years is enough. We got to get out. Nation building doesn't work or didn't work. We got to go. No, you know, let's just do it without, with no tears. Right. I mean, that's, is that essentially where my, you come down? My, I'm glad. I think we were right to go in. I think we stayed way too long. So we didn't, we no longer had such a national security interest in being there. Okay. So I guess the question I've got, and it's, I agree, I, I, I will stipulate, I say, First of all, I will stipulate that I've been using the word stipulate too much, but um, <laughs> I will then stipulate that uh, I will concede that this is not a primary issue, but it, it does bother me. I think that the way I, I do not trust the Biden administration at all about the numbers that they're putting out. I think, you know, it's we're recording this on Thursday morning. They're talking about up to 200 Americans coming out on these planes out of um, Kabul. Although the numbers are squishy, so it's, they say 200 Americans and other foreign nationals are coming out. There's supposedly like 100 waiting to come out in Mazar Sharif, which is weird because like a day and a half, like a day and a half ago, yesterday, we were told there were only 100 Americans left and already we've got 300 or so or 200 so Americans left on planes. I, I, the lack of journalistic skepticism about the numbers of Americans left behind there Um and the way the media completely missed that almost none of the SIVs were on those evacuation flights um, is kind of a journalistic scandal to me. And, uh, and, and why we would give the Biden administration and the State Department the benefit of the doubt on any of these numbers is a mystery to me. But that's not the thing I want to get into. So the Taliban announced its new government. And literally, it's the same Taliban, right? The guy who's the head is... The, the supreme leader was, has been the emir of the Taliban for years. Uh, he gave up his own son as a suicide bomber. Uh, the head of the Haqqani network is the minister of the interior. I mean, it's, it's a total shit show uh, for anybody. Anybody who claimed there was a new Taliban or any of that kind of stuff, uh, they've just been beclowned. Okay. And the... All right, I had to put this. This is what I wrote about in the G file. I think realism is a, for the most part, in terms of, let me put it this way go back to Thucydides. Yeah, there's a thing called realism in foreign policy. Fine. But in Washington debates, the best working definition of a realist 
is someone who, an ideologue who lost an argument to another ideologue. And, um, uh, and they say, oh, if they only listened to me, I was a realist, but no, they had to go with their democracy stuff or their nation building stuff or their this or their that. Everybody has got a set of priors about what they believe in foreign policy. What this administration seems to believe, to the extent it's not all messaging BS, is that the international community is a very serious thing that the Taliban is scared of. And, um, and that they have lots of leverage because the opinion of the international community um, matters a great deal to the Taliban. I do not understand how a sentient, sentient life form can make this argument when the Taliban has been living in caves, crapping in buckets, and sending their own kids to be suicide bombers for 20 years, murdering untold numbers of people, which the international community also frowns upon. And now that they've actually achieved the total power that they want, um, that they've been craving for all of this time, that now, you know, pressure in, 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 in Geneva over clever cheese in a hotel lobby conference room is somehow going to get them to stop being the Taliban. I don't get it. And I think the administration's best arguments for all of this crap are profoundly ideological. And they're claiming that they're based in realism and, and hard headed sober, uh, vital American national interests. And I think it's all garbage and I have follow-ups, but I, I've been ranting. So, uh, <laughs> you pick and choose from that smorgasbord what you want to eat. Okay. So again, I think you're onto something real, uh, or let's, I can't use the word real now, any, something true, but I think you're exaggerating. Um, the, it, it, it is absolutely, you know, there are people, there are sort of high-minded liberal people who, who think that, you know, it, the a good opinion of the international community will have some effect. And I can, I agree with you that that's just a pipe dream, um, and particularly in the case of the Taliban. But, you know, the to be fair to the Biden people, their argument is really that they have some kind of leverage. And the leverage consists of real things like banking, access to banking, or um, uh, removal of sanctions, um, which overlaps. Um, so, you know, there are things that materially the Taliban might need. And to the extent that, you know, the United States and other Western countries can sort of hold them to account, can, can, can hang that over them, that gives us some leverage. But yeah, it's a bad situation. I mean, the real truth about Afghanistan is not that something wonderful will come out of this, but that the United States government under the Biden administration, but also to some extent under the Trump administration, made a decision that Afghanistan was not that important. You know, it was the place from which we got to attack 20 years ago. But now there's, you know, terrorism, terrorism networks all over the place, yada, yada. We need to diffuse our resources. It's crazy that we have, you know, uh, our troops sitting there in one place, like, uh, we're, like we're more targets than we are preventing anything. Um, again, that's a calculation we can debate. But the, anyway, the, my point is that this was a decision to drop Afghan, I don't want to say drop it in the trash can, but basically say, you're not that important and we're going to let bad stuff happen here, right? You can call that realism, you can call it cynicism, you can call it whatever you want, but it's a decision to let bad stuff happen. So what comes after that, like, oh, bad stuff won't happen, or it's not that bad, or, you know, we, we have ways of stopping the bad stuff. No, we don't, right? We're, we're letting Afghanistan go. The stuff about, like, democracy in Afghanistan, the rights of women in Afghanistan, you know, these guys are going to do what they're going to do. They release their list of, there's no women on the list of Taliban who are going to run anything, right? So we're going to try to re retract and we're going to try to protect America from terror threats elsewhere. That's just a moral compromise. So I'm, I agree with you about that. I don't agree about the policy of staying and I would encourage you and anyone 
who thinks that we should have stayed longer or done more. Like, imagine your alternative world. Imagine your alternative. First of all, you're thinking about pulling the plug. The plug was pulled in February of 2020, right? We signed an agreement. You know, we told that we we signed an agreement with the Taliban that we're going to pull out all the troops by May 1st of 2021, not August 31st, May 1st. Biden extends that. And now Biden is accused of pulling the plug. That plug was pulled and there was yeah, time. I'm sorry. I, I agree with a lot of the stuff you said. That dog just doesn't hunt with me. Joe Biden reversed God knows how many Trump decisions. He didn't reverse this one. Uh, you know, the uh, I don't believe a word that Pompeo or Katie McEnany or any of these people say about what their real plan was. I think it's all lies and ask right. and CYA. But he's the president now. He took the position that he basically told the Pentagon, you have this much time and this many resources to get out by this date. Do what you got to do. And the U.S. bugged out in the dead, essentially in the dead of night, withdrew without informing the Afghan military that what it was doing and left these guys high and dry. And I get it. If that's the policy, that's the policy. But then to go around saying we don't, we, we, we really thought they were going to fight longer when they now no longer can like even launch their plane, you know, launch their planes or refuel them um, or, or fix their personnel care, you know, their, their carriers or, and they're not going to get any intelligence, you know, overflight uh, information anymore. And they're, communication systems are all screwed up because the Americans bugged out on them and to then throw the Afghan army under the bus as a bunch of cowards, I think was just fundamentally dishonorable. But I mean, again, the, the question going forward, I mean, so my point is a, is a subtler one. I, I think that, I think you're right. Whatever label we want to call on it, the Biden administration basically threw said, if they're not going to throw it, either throw it under the bus or throw it in the trash, whatever metaphor you want. But they were like, they were just done with Afghanistan. And once they made that mental decision, they wanted to pull off the bandaid as quickly as possible. I think Biden has been ideologically bought into this position since his fights in the Obama administration. And he has been utterly blind to the facts on the ground since then, because he is determined and a very stubborn guy. This is one of the few things where I can actually point to something of conviction on his part. He wanted to do this. He had a theory about it. And I think one of the reasons why he's getting so pissy with people is because this theory that he's been saying I've been right about for 10 years turned out to have a lot more problems than he thought it would. And he promised people it wasn't going to be the fall of Saigon. And it looked a hell of a lot like the fall of Saigon. Um, but my point is more about, I think this is a profoundly ideological approach right now. Like this thing about women, the state department was very concerned that there were no women in the cabinet. It's like, well, okay. What kind of policies do they think a woman who passed muster with the Taliban would support if they were in the cabinet? Would that like, like it is a, uh, uh, we have just gotten out of the way of a true terror state, a, a state that's literally run by people we have bounties on for terrorism that the UN has bounties on for terrorism. Um, the Haqqani network is, just, if, if, if the Haqqani network isn't terrorist, then we know it has no meaning. All of these guys have sworn fealty to, to, to uh, Al Qaeda has sworn fealty to them. They support Al Qaeda. They're celebrating nine 11. It's a terror state. And the state department comes out with statements about how they're so concerned that there aren't more women in the cabinet. Now, 
would it be some huge leap forward for our American vital interests and foreign policy if for whatever reason they came up with some sort of Taliban-y Fox Force 5 of like five serious chicks who believe in all the terror stuff, but they're women, right? Would that be a, a valuable advance for us? Why are we more, why are we vo- giving more concern about women in the government of a terrorist state than the fact that it's a terrorist state? And I, and, and you may have answers to that, but they're ideological answers. They're not about our vital national interests. If it's, if it's not a problem for a vital national interest to have a bunch of terrorist thugs running a country, um, how it can be in our interest, what gender they are, is a complete friggin' mystery to me. But again, I think my only point here is that they're, they're hiding behind the cloak of being hard-headed realists, and they are in reality pushing very ideological stuff that... Um, you know, including this international community stuff, which is basically the Democratic Party's position on foreign policy for a long time now is it's been better to be wrong in a big group than to be right alone. And that multilateralism is a good in of itself. It's not a means to an end. It's an end in an, uh, of an end. And I think that's all nonsense. But my point here is it's, it's ideological nonsense. It is not realistic nonsense. It is not taking the world as you find it. It is, it is imposing, projecting your views upon the world and claiming this is what reality is. Okay. So my boring answer is you're correct. Um, th- I, th- okay. All- it's been great to have <laughs> Will Salatin on. <laughs> it, I mean, it's a true point. My argument is it's a small point, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're right. And that's part of what, part of what conservatives should do is when progressives, you know, are large, like in this, I think that the progressive position here is largely correct, but at the margins, there are, there are mistakes or there's deceptions and you're pointing one out, which is like, this is, this is all talk. We're not going to do anything about this. We're, we're complaining about the gender composition of, but you know, that's part of just, as you point out, the larger sort of attitude of the Taliban state. It's going to be a bad state. It is a bad state. It's doing bad stuff already. And, and so we're, we're dressing that up with a lot of talk. I'm glad we're saying it. I'm glad we're saying it's wrong what they're doing, but we're not going to do anything about it. Right. We just pulled out with our force to do something. I wanted a, a couple of things about, about the sort of pulling the plug thing. I, I'm not making an argument about Joe Biden's responsibility mm-hmm. there. I mean, I can make that argument separately. What I'm making is an argument about the surprise factor. Oh my God, we left Bagram in the middle of the night. I mean, this was telegraphed more than a year in advance to the Afghan national forces. The simple truth is that after 20 years of us being there, they didn't have the ability, or if you grant they had the ability, they didn't have the will to, to stand up and fight the Taliban at that point. And it is crazy to me that conservatives, the people who would never, ever say, oh yeah, this 20-year-old government program that still isn't working because people don't do what we expect them to do, we should keep that around. No, like the war should be looked at like a government program, right? We have been like in there trying to supply you know, the material trying to get things going and it just hasn't happened. Right. That's a failure. The war uh, going in there to like bust the the Taliban because they had, they had, they had harbored the people who attacked us on nine 11. That's one thing. But for us to be there and trying to like build up Afghanistan and 20 years later, we're saying, Oh, we need to be doing more. And how dare we pull out our forces, which they desperately needed. You sound like a bunch of liberals with our liberals, progressives, like we just need more government money in there and we can prop up this community that isn't really doing what it needs to do. So we should have, we either developed self-sufficiency or if we didn't get out. So I'm, I'm glad we're getting out. Right. Um, 
it would be great if we could like police the world, but we can't. So anyway, that's my point about that. Yeah. I mean, um, again, again, I, 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 it's amazing how Afghanistan becomes a, like, forget a quagmire in Asia. It becomes a quagmire on this podcast. Um, but <laughs> I just for the record, we weren't doing nation building. We'd given up that mission in like 2015 or so. Um, this had been purely counterterrorism strategy, which had the ancillary benefit of letting girls still go back to school and, and, and have jobs and have real lives and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, it was not, and, and, and I agree, we shouldn't be policemen around the world. We're not. Um, there are lots of terrible things happening in lots of places that we're not doing anything about. But we, you know, I hated Colin Powell's Paribon rule when he came up with it, but we did go into Afghanistan. We did make promises. We have certain um, obligations to be good to our word at very minimum, good to our word to the people who risk their lives fighting alongside of us. And I think you make perfectly fine points about how the Afghan military should have seen the writing on the wall earlier because we were putting the writing on the wall earlier and all that. We could have, I mean, like, like what Fred Kagan makes this point, if we had just simply waited until winter to pull out, um, the Taliban fights seasonally. It goes back to its camps in Pakistan. It makes sure it gets its heroin crop out in the spring, and then it goes back to fighting. That would have bought the Afghan government a few months and bought us some more months to get people out. Um, I find, and the, the, I, I, I find the Biden administration's argument about this particularly infuriating precisely because they originally said these things would not happen. And then when they happened, they said they were inevitable and they anticipated them, but they were surprised by them. And, um, if they were inevitable, when Joe Biden talked about this in July, he should have said, this is what's going to happen. And if they weren't inevitable, he shouldn't have lied to us. Um, and so I, I, I just, I think there is no defending the administration on the execution of this policy. And I just simply think that, that the policy itself was, was, was wrong. But I certainly understand there are people, and I, put you in that camp who in good faith make serious well-considered arguments about why we did need to bug out and 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 i get it but um but i just disagree okay i'll i'll accept that deal okay so um in the in the in the in the, 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 the tiny amount of time we have left how long have we been going here it's always i don't know what it is about you that brings out the rantiness in me um but um <laughs> Uh, um, so I, did you, I had Graham Wood on last week, um, uh, from the Atlantic. It was great. I highly recommend, I learned a lot from it. Um, um, but, uh, um, one of the things we talked about was this piece that he had written, the sort of profile of this guy, what is it? Peter Turchin. Um, he's the, the sort of the author of this theory of a elite overproduction. Um, that we have too many elites and that the, um, and the problem is, is that you, when you have elite, he's one of these guys in the grand tradition of, of sort of both Russians and also guys from the sciences thinking they can predict the future. And they've, they've, they've turned the key on, on, 
on the code of humanity, sort of like those guys in the Scientology books who had the had an algorithm to predict all future kind and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, he has this theory that we're doomed, that we're screwed. And in part because we have too many elites and not enough places of status to put them. And so you get warring elites with each other. And I, I don't want to recycle it because I talked about it a lot with, with Graham, but I think it's a really fascinating kind of point. And one of the points that Graham or that Turchin makes in the Atlantic piece is like Steve Bannon is a perfect example of what you get when you have elite overproduction. Here's this guy, went to Harvard Business School, worked on Wall Street, made a, became a multimillionaire in part from the royalties from Seinfeld um, and utterly rejects the existing regime and wants to be a revolution. You know, he basically, he basically wants to be the Lenin of global jackassery populism, right? And, um, um, and, and this is something I've written and talked about a bunch is that like, it drives me crazy when I hear particularly Ted Cruz, um, who I think is misunderstood by a lot of people, but on this thing, he drives me crazy when he talks about how he's at war with the elites. This is a guy who went to Harvard, Harvard Law, uh, was a solicitor general of Texas. He was a clerk to the Supreme Court. He's a friggin' third term, second term, U- third term U.S. senator. Um, his wife is a managing director of Goldman Sachs, I believe. Uh, the idea that he is not an elite is so insane to me. And similarly, like when Elizabeth Warren talks about how she's like, we're going after the elites, you know, she uses slightly different language, but it's the same argument. Um, the reality is, is that we have in this country, this conversation going on between competing groups of elites about who should actually be the elite and how pissed off they are that they think they're not. And I'm just kind of curious what you think about all of that. Well, it's, I mean, it's a very complicated idea. I mean, first, it, the number one problem is defining elites and how much mobility, what are the thresholds for getting into the elite. Um, you know, I see this on social media. I see this on Twitter where people with large followings are sort of the elite. Uh, and they're, But their following is not necessarily based on any particular knowledge or accuracy. It's based on sort of popularity. And I think that's the problem. I guess... To me, merit is the solution to all these things, and systems that promote merit are great. And like, if if being in the elite is a function, if you have to earn it, um, then then that solves the problem. You you you've actually deserve to be respected. You deserve to have a larger voice. The problem is when it's inherited, or when the the elites practice a kind of snobbery instead of knowledge, right? So like I, I worry right now, like I'm thinking about the context of COVID because like literally a thousand people are dying every day in America from this. Um, it, it the, it's the anti-elitism is, is, has become a kind of like, it's a rejection of anybody in a position of, of authority, right? It's an, it's an anti-authority position and that, you know, that's deadly. That's deadly because there's a high overlap between, you know, not perfect, but there's a high overlap between people who are in authority telling you things about COVID and, 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 and the truth. And so, like, I, I very much worry about the anti-elitism mm-hmm. because it becomes a rejection of knowledge, and in this case, a fatal rejection of knowledge. Um, and in terms of the elitism itself, you know, to the extent that it provokes anti-elitism or makes it easier for anti-elitists to, to cultivate ignorance and, and harmful, self-destructive behavior, yeah, that's, that's a problem too. But that's, 
you know, it's, I guess what I want is an audit. We have this whole internet, right? We have like, so it's so much easier for more people to speak to each other, to communicate and to listen, but we don't have quality, right? We haven't, human beings have not gotten better. And so we need to somehow learn how to use this amazing technology in more intelligently and responsibly and like debate each other with evidence and learn more. You can learn so much and we can have new people rising into the elite you know, not because they got a degree from, you know, such and such, you know, revered institution, but because like they've demonstrated over time that they get things right um, and that they see things that are wrong. So, yeah, I guess I want to change the nature of elitism. I don't want to get rid of it. I want to change it. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, I just, look, I mean, again, I've been writing against populism for a long time. Um, I think conservatives in particular have always been kind of, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance when it comes to the issue of elites. Um, because like most conservatives do not want to go to the, um, the median heart surgeon, right? The, the heart surgeon and the really meaty part of the bell curve. Uh, that's not who they want when they want need to like, heart surgery. They want the guy way out on the right tail of the bell curve. They want the, 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 the elite surgeons. They love elite soldiers, right? SEAL Team 6 and all that kind of stuff. They love legal elites that agree with them. Um, and, uh, the, and so the part of the problem is that elite has become code for a ruling class of a different tribe than my own. And um, uh, um, you know, one cannot look at my old boss, William F. Buckley, videos of him playing the harpsichord, right? Or read his books about sailing and tell me that this guy wasn't a member of some kind of elite, right? Um, and, and he was very popular on the right. Um, and so this is sort of what I'm getting at, getting at is, you know, so there's this uh, there were these Italian, there were these famous sort of elite theory sociologists, uh, Villafred Pareto, Ma, you know, Michaels um, and Mosca, whatever, you know, and, and, and Michaels is the guy who writes, um, oh gosh, what it is it? Um, the Iron Law of Oligarchy. Pareto is the guy who comes up with the, the, the Pareto distribution where he found, and it's now been proven time and time again, that the thousands of different things in life basically have what they call Pareto distribution. And basically it's 80, 20. So like 20% of your salesmen make 80% of the sales, right? Um, uh, you know, 80%, uh, 20, like, what was it? George will told me this, that, um, the reason they came up with, um, what was it? What's the beer you pour when you're having more than one? Was it, was it Schlitz? Was it, I'm going to Google it because this is too embarrassing not to have, right? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember. But you know what I'm talking about, the, um, the commercial, you know, the beer you pour when, you, when you're having more than one. I hear the click-click of somebody yeah. researching. Uh, Schaefer. Was it Schaefer? The one beer to have when you're having more than one. Yeah. George Will pointed out to me that they came up with that ad, that marketing campaign because they realized that 20% of beer drinkers drink like 80% of the beer. Um, and I think Pareto first came up with it because he realized that in any society, 20% of the, uh, of the population ends up owning like 80% of the land. 
Um, and again, these are rough numbers, but they, they, they sort of like the Fibonacci series. They show up in all sorts of interesting places in sociology. And, and so the point is elites are always going to be inevitable, right? This is a point that, that, that these guys have made in a bunch of different ways. Even in the iron law of, Ol Ol the iron law of oligarchy was a study of the social democratic parties in Germany. And, and what, what Michael's or Michelle's came realized was that like even expressly democratic institutions, there's a natural sorting thing where the people with access to information rise to the top and become in, become in charge. And it's, it's unavoidable. And, and so I think that like there are a lot of people on the right and the left who come at this from different places. There's sort of the cultural populism, populism of the right and the sort of weak tea in theory, Marxist kind of thinking of the left. Um, that rejects this idea that there's going to be elites and like the founders understood there are always going to be elites. You just need to come up with a system that keeps them in check, that pits them against each other. That's why we have two houses of a legislature. That's why we have divided government, all this kind of stuff. Uh, you should read John Adams about the Senate. He basically considered aristocracy inevitable. And that's why he really describes it as a beast that you need to chain to, <laughs> to the ground. And that's the Senate. Um, and, and so like, the choice isn't whether we're going to have elites in this country or not have elites. Elites are baked into the cake. It's, it's how we pick them, how we select them, how we reward them. And I think the problem, the problem that Churchin gets at is that because, you know, starting, I guess with the GI bill or whatever, and the rise of the meritocracy, we're just producing an enormous number of people who all have essentially the same credentials to be members of the elite. And you just can't have enough slots to have that many people in charge and so you end up getting these fights that are sort of like 15th century Italy where it's it's really just different houses or different clans and alliances of elites fighting to see who's going to be in charge and um I don't know I mean I've, I've lost the thread here but I, I I think that's that's where I come down on a lot of these things when I whenever I see I I've lost the ability to say, oh yeah, it's our side versus the elites because it's really just, it's competing factions of elites and they each point to their sort of poster children, downtrodden masses as the people that they're representing as the authentic real people. You know, this is basically J.D. Vance's Twitter feed. Um, you know, guy who was a hedge fund, you know, Yale guy who made a millions off of a book in a in a movie directed by ron howard is talking about how he aligns with you know the lumpen proletariat um and it's a shtick and it it drives me crazy on the left and it drives me crazy on the right and um i don't know how you get out of it i mean turchin thinks you need some sort of massive war or something and i, I would rather avoid that um or some other calamity population collapse i don't know um or maybe colonies in outer space would do it. We ship out a lot of elites and they get to start their own <laughs> society. But um, anyway, I just thought, I, I, I'm sorry for filibustering on it. I just thought it would be interesting to get your take. Yeah, on it. it's, a, it's, it's well, I mean, what you're really talking about isn't the elitism, it's populism, right? And the populism, it consists of, of lying to other people about, lying to the, the, the public about elitism, right? We're, we're, those sure. people are the elites, right? So, I mean, the, the populism is kind of the danger here and the, and the bad elitism that, that provokes the populism, which in turn causes all sorts of, of you know, crimes against humanity and, and historically is, is the, the result of that. Um, and what, but what I think what you're, what I, what I take away from what you're saying is this is a good project for 
um, people, you know, intelligent people, of, no matter, you know, of, of all political stripes to be talking about now, um, there is there is a destructive populism on the right um, that is sort of racist and nativist and um, uh, anti anti uh, scientific. And there is a destructive populism on the left that will will tear down, you know, over the long term, will will sort of tear down um, s- certain kinds of freedom that make uh, allow people to flourish and help societies flourish. You know, you know, to some you can't really tear down capitalism. You need economic growth, for example. Um, and what we need to do is um, is is as you're pointing out, sort of shape uh, structures of merit. And structures of, I mean, there, you know, it's like the difference between what Republicans say. It's the difference between equity and equality, which uh, that's complicated. It's it's equal opportunity and equal outcome, right? And as you're pointing out, there won't be equal outcomes if you let if you allow freedom. If you start with the premise of freedom, there will be different outcomes, right? And we somehow have to manage that. I I think it's great to have unequal outcomes to the extent that we are allowing people of greater ability and to, to do more, right? And over the long term, that's good for society if we manage it, right? They start a, they have an idea, they start a business, they create a whole industry. There's it's it's good for everybody. Um, but then you have to manage that so there isn't a political backlash. Right now, progressives are sort of trying to, you know, rectify some of the economic inequality. We do have out of control economic inequality in this country. You and I can debate the extent of it. But the point is the political or system, the perniciousness we, of it. I mean, I, I, again, I, I, I care about poor people. I want there to be fewer poor people. Yeah. And I want our definition of poor people to be pretty generous in the sense that our, I want our poor people to be rich by comparison to other countries. But there are always as it's a Pareto distribution. There's always going to be someone in the bottom 10th of the, you know, the bottom, de- you know, deck, you know, the bottom 10 percent. And there's always going to be somebody, there are people in the top 1 percent because it's math. It's the iron law of math and distribution. But the the delta between the people in the bottom 10 and the top 10, I find most of those objections to be either part of our lizard brain or purely aesthetic. They don't really bother me in the slightest. Well, there's like different thresholds, right? So like there's making sure that people have enough to have a decent living, to have a decent life, to raise, right. give children, give, give their kids a chance. Their kids didn't choose this. Give, get, let the kids be born into a family where at least they have a chance to sort of make something of themselves and find out what their entirely. merit is, right? That's, I agree, I agree, that's I agree all that cool, right? Yeah, make yeah. sure people are okay. And then like general cultivation of human abilities. Like I'm, I'm fine with progressive programs that invest in like human capital to get the best out of people. That's, I, I support that. And then, you know, then there's the larger question of, what you need politically to, to prevent like a, a destructive rebellion and destructive, uh, destructive anti-elitism. And, and that's a, that's just a political judgment, how much, how much equality. So to your point about like the rich, the gap between the rich and the poor, I, in, in theory, there's no problem with Jeff Bezos being as rich as he wants to be, as long as, you know, people at the lower end can have a decent life and their kids can have a decent life. But politically, sometimes you have to make a prudential judgment about, you know, how much is, too much and creates too much resentment and, and and therefore a backlash. But I'd like to see more thought on the left and the right about what kinds of interventions we need um, to like redistrib- what kind of redistribution we need, what kind of taxation and spending we need in order to get the best out of people, which may vary from person to person. But that kind of thinking, as opposed to sort of dogmatic, you know, the government should do everything, or dogmatic, the government should do nothing. Nope, I think I think that's all fair. Um... Um, I mean, obviously we're going to have our disagreements when we get come down from 30,000 feet, but, um, but look, I, I agree. Like, um, this should be an opportunity society and 
that and that there should be a minimum threshold of opportunity for everybody at the lowest on the lowest rung socioeconomic rungs um i think some of that comes some of that is more achievable through cultural stuff than it is necessarily through government programs like one of the things and i know we're running long but like i just like one of the things that just breaks my heart about where sort of the woke identity politics left is taking things is this argument that says that bourgeois values are code for white values. Um, and like, I'm a three cheers for the bourgeoisie guy. Um, I think that the, 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 one of the best things about immigrants coming to this country is that in many ways they're more American than Americans are in terms of these sort of bourgeois values of hard work, delayed gratification, doing everything for your kids and the next generation. Um, uh, you know, strong family values, help members of your own family before you help anybody else, all that kind of, those are like core bourgeois values in there is, and they apply many ways more to the average poor Hispanic, Asian immigrant family, African immigrant family than they do to a lot of native born families who have seen their families sort of come apart in a lot of ways. Um, and when we start saying that those kinds of values of, you know, sort of success sequence kind of, uh, work ethic stuff is really just code for white people. Um, it creates a lot of racist arguments from white people who believe that crap and it creates a barrier to entry for the single best way of moving up the socioeconomic ladder, which is in, in, in internalizing those values, broadly speaking. Yeah, I agree with you. Th those values, th that's universal. These are just facts of human nature. Uh, they extend across all people. And, and I mean, we, we, we can't get into all the race stuff here, but like the, the I, w one problem with too much, like, there's, a, there's racial enlightenment, becoming aware of racial discrimination and ra you know, racism or racial disparities that are built into a system. And then there's like seeing the whole world through race. And this is a good example of it where you're like projecting that as a white thing. No, it's not a white thing. It's a people thing. And no, I agree with you about the bourgeois values and the question, we can have an argument about how to define them, but by sure. and large, that's what's good. Yeah. All right. Well, with this, with this violent, once again, violent agreement on, on at least some of the stuff that matters most, uh, I want to thank you for putting up with me. I, I, I am really oddly filibustery this morning and I'm, it's like I had a blood transfusion from John Podoritz or something. So I apologize. Um, um, soaking up so much time. Can I just, can I, I wanted just to say something though about this. This is uh, one of the reasons why I really enjoy talking with you is it never feels like, you know, it's not like a going on MSNBC or something where you have like, you know, 10 seconds to like, I do my, I, I'm supposed to represent my camp. You represent your camp. We exchange a couple of sound bites. Like you're actually thinking out loud. And I really appreciate that. I'm like listening to you. Like you're not, you're not here to like win an argument. You're here to like figure out what you think. And you're, you know, you're incorporating things that I'm saying, and I'm incorporating things that you're saying. And we're learning from each other. I think it's a model of how public conversation should be. No, I agree. I, I, I really, I, I really enjoy it a great deal. Um, and I mean, I, again, this is why I say they're, you're probably remnant listeners, favorite liberal. Um, um, and I like when I criticize cable news these days, people think I'm just like sort of subtweeting Fox news. Um, and I'm not, I think that it's, this is a, the cable news model is so bad. Um, for, having anything like a real conversation in particular 
the thing that drives me the most crazy is like, I'm sure you've had this experience a million times in one way or the other, where you're invited on to talk about something and the person you're up against isn't another conservative journalist. It's um, like a Republican operative who just happens to also like look like they moonlight as an underwear model for Victoria's Secret or something, or or just or just some uh, Republican operative who is a total and complete hack who will automatically take the hundred percent extreme position. And like, and when I do it, it was like, I'll find some democratic operative or, you know, whatever, some activist who who's paid to take a position. Right. And, and so then if you do what we do constantly on this, which is make this like somewhat a concession, right. You'll say, well, I think Joe makes a good point when he says X, but I think he's wrong about Y. The other person will say, see, even Jonah agrees with me that George W. Bush is Hitler. <laughs> and then you get forced into this sort of no nuance is allowed kind of mode where you have to take the opposite position and it just makes things worse. You know, it just, it, and, and, and the problem I have with all cable news these days, not every show, but the, the phenomenon in general is that so much of it is telling people all of your priors are right. And this is why you should have scorn for those people. And, um, um, and I think I wrote about this a while back. The chances of having a conservative, liberal, serious dialogue like this in a, on a cable news network where you have a four minute hit is just impossible. But the very least, what I think MSNBC should do, what Fox should do, what CNN should do is have really serious debates among liberals that show that liberals disagree with each other, that there isn't like this tribal popular front thing where we all agree. And instead, like I watched Nicole Wallace and it's like, okay, now you tell me why I'm right. Now you tell me why I'm right. Now you tell me why they're right. And the same thing happens on Fox. And it's just this bubble of mutually reinforcing agreement on everything, which sends the signal that you have to agree with your party on every single issue or you're not an authentic Democrat or a Republican. And I think that is really a big driver of the, the polarization that we've got today. I agree with all of that. And one thing that remnant listeners might not be aware of, Jonah is actually modeling underwear during this podcast. Well, I mean, much like a, a winger in stripes, I, uh, <laughs> I rarely wear underwear, but when I do, it's usually something pretty interesting. Um, all right. So with that wonderful image that is going to have people reaching <laughs> for the emetic, uh, I want to again thank Will for coming on, and I, I hope you'll come back. Thank you. I would love to. Okay, so uh, Will has left uh, the studio, um, or is I, I? I I feel bad saying this because it's not the way it is, but I'm assuming he's left. It, he, he's out of the closet now because he records this podcast whenever he comes on. He's like literally recording it in a closet, and I'm watching him with like sitting amidst racks of clothes and stuff, and. So I assume he's out of the closet now. Um, uh, anyway, I, I always enjoy um, talking to Will. I'm sure some people don't like our self-congratulatory um, tone sometimes about how much we get along, but uh, you suck it up. It's just part of the thing. Um, and uh, what else is there to talk about? Um, 
not oh we're still working on figuring out how to do this sort of this clever audio sign off thing for the solo ruminants more about that in the solo ruminant or the end of the week ruminant whatever that one and um uh again the wednesday g file which is normally just for uh, paid members of the dispatch community is out for everybody uh check it out it touches on some of the stuff i was talking to will about um i try to keep the nudity tasteful and um beyond that i'll just i'll see you next time no you won't this is a podcast Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.